All right, well, we come now to our introduction to systematic theology. We began a new section where we're looking at the doctrine of the church, and in particular, the diligent use of the outward means of grace. We read that these outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation are all of his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. And last Lord's Day, we highlighted just a couple of things. One, we noted from Matthew 28 the connection that Christ makes between his authority and the Great Commission. He said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And then in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we see the commissioning of the church to go and make disciples, to baptize, to teach, to discipline. That is one of the means by which Christ the exalted Christ exercises his authority over all the earth. And so we reason then from that, that when you reject the church, when you reject the local gathering of his people, who have devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, when you reject the sacraments, when you reject all of the ordinances that God has commanded the church to teach, you are rejecting Christ in rebelling against his authority. And then secondly, we honed in on the word ordinary. And I did this in anticipation of someone who may say, well, but can't God work without these means? Saul, after all, wasn't converted by sitting in a church and listening to a preacher. Jesus himself spoke to him from heaven. And so we pointed out that, yes, our confession acknowledges that God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means that is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. However, that does not give us the excuse to ignore what God has clearly prescribed for us in his word. Whatever extraordinary thing God wants to do is solely his business. And the secret things belong to him. We are not called to sit around and speculate and try to figure out what those secret things are. We are called to follow what God has commanded us in his word. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And in Matthew 28, that is what Christ is commissioning the church to do, to teach the nations to observe all that I have commanded you, all that I have revealed. And so we do what God clearly commands us in his word to do. And we do it with humility. We realize that while understanding that God has chosen to use means and to use us, he is still sovereign and therefore he's the one calling the shots. We are not to despise God's ordinary means of grace. Well, that leads me now to today's emphasis. Today, I want to hone in on the word outward. Remember, our standards refer to these means of grace as both ordinary, which we looked at last week, and now outward. So what are we to understand by referring to these means of grace as outward? And if these means are said to be outward, does this suggest then that there's something inward going on as well? You know, I remember when we first started attending a church here some almost 10 years ago, 
I was hearing this language of outward and ordinary means of grace. That I think we got tested on it back then. And I had heard those words before, but hadn't given much thought. Well, now that I'm here, I'm hearing it more often, it's one of those things that I just needed to figure out. Like, what in the world are they talking about? And let me tell you, once I got a sense of what these things meant, that was like a game changer for me. There were so many things about the church, its nature, church membership, the sacraments, particularly infant baptism, that really started to fall in place and make sense for me. So what's this outward, inward thing about? Well, as we have taught earlier in this series, there is a covenant of redemption that was made by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity. Why? Because by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life. We read, for example, from the uh, larger catechism 13, God by an eternal and immutable decree out of his mere love for the praise of his glorious grace to be manifested in due time hath elected some angels to glory and in Christ has chosen some men to eternal life and the means thereof and also according to his sovereign power and the unsearchable counsel of his own will whereby he extendeth or beholdeth favor as he pleaseth hath passed by and foreordained the rest to dishonor and wrath to be for their sin inflicted and to the praise of the glory of his justice. And then we read from the chapter on effectual calling that, quote, all those whom God had predestinated into life and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power determining them that to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace, unquote. And so we see this decree of God, whereby he has chosen to not allow everyone to perish in their sin, but to redeem a people to himself, was determined in eternity, and then it is manifested, it is revealed in history, in due time and in space. When God first created man, he established a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. However, what happened? Adam rebelled against God. He broke the covenant. And at this point, God could have simply just wiped Adam and Eve off the face of the map and that would have been the end for mankind. Yet God doesn't do this. In the midst of cursing the serpent, God makes this promise, Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Notice God is going to put hostility between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent seed and her seed, singular. And from her, there is one coming. There is a seed who is coming who's going to bruise the head of the serpent. The serpent is going to be defeated. And so here you have the first promise in Scripture of a redeemer that's going to come and rescue man. This is often called the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. But what I want you to catch here is that this promise is the manifestation of that eternal covenant of redemption. This is that covenant now being made manifest in 
time and in space and history. And it wasn't an afterthought. It was God's plan all along. And so we read in our confession, chapter 7, paragraph 3, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And so when Adam, who represented the whole of man, failed that first covenantal arrangement, God then reveals his eternal covenant of redemption in time and space. And it's this revealing of that covenant in time and space that gives it this twofold nature, an inward Invisible nature, if you want to word it that way, and an outward, visible nature. This twofold nature is seen throughout. You can see this twofold nature in the calling of God. You can see it with the covenant. You can see it with the church. And you can see it with the sacraments. So just, I know this is going to be brief and maybe something that you don't often hear from from. From Christians, but just put on your thinking cap here for a minute. Think about it. As the gospel call goes out to man, there is the outward call, right? I'm outwardly calling you right now. Anybody and everybody can hear this outward call via preachers, via those who proclaim the gospel. When you go down to Ybor City and you hear the street preacher on the corner proclaiming the gospel, that's the outward call going out. Sound waves are spreading out and entering into people's ears, walking the streets. So for many people, when they hear it, they think, meh, that don't make any sense. What a bunch of baloney. I'm not interested in that Bible, any of that stuff. But for others, something else may happen. For some whom God has elected and in God's appointed time for them, that proclamation, that outward call produces a different result. Because as we read in chapter 10 of the Confession, God is effectually calling them by his word and his spirit. He is at that point enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He is in that moment taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. He is in short being quickened, that is made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit so that now he's able to answer that outward call and actually embrace the grace that is offered and conveyed in that outward call. So do you see what's happening? You have an outward call go out to all. And many people being left in their spiritual deadness, let that go in one ear and out the other. But for those whom God has elected in his, in his appointed time, that outward call is received. It's understood, it's embraced, it's believed. And that is the inward work that God is doing. I'll never forget, 17 years old, 1993, I get invited to church. The only reason I went, because I had a huge crush on the girl. That's all I cared about was her. Go to church, I hear the gospel. And to my own shock and surprise, I'm sitting in the pew, I'm like, not only do I understand what he's saying, I actually believe this, I embrace it. Like, and by the time it was done, I wasn't even thinking about her anymore. God had just changed my life just instantly. 
Now he's the center of everything. That's that inward work. God took the outward calling, did an inward work within me through his spirit. That's that dual nature that I'm talking about here. Likewise, as people are gathered and assembled into the church, we speak of the church as being both visible and invisible. The invisible church is made up of all the elect, past, present, and future. And who are the elect? There are those for whom God is going to do that inward work of quickening and renewal in time and space. The visible church is the outward manifestation of that invisible church in time and space, in history. And the members of this visible church are those who profess the faith and their children. But keep in mind, not everyone who makes profession actually possesses salvation. People can be deceived. People can be fakes. And so we don't say that the members of the visible church are the elect only because that's simply not the case. Membership in the visible church is based on a profession of faith. It's not based on whether a pastor can read your heart and infallibly know for certain that you are of the elect. That's impossible. Only God knows that. And so we accept people based on their profession. And your children are included because God has always included the children in the visible church. Now think of the sacraments. The sacraments as well have this dual nature. In baptism and the Lord's Supper, there are the unseen spiritual realities, union with Christ, regeneration, sanctification, and so on. And then there are the signs of those realities, water, bread, and wine. You're not engrafted into Christ because someone poured water over your head one day. The water is not the substance. You're not feeding upon the body and blood of Christ because you put some wine and bread in your mouth. These are symbols. The water, the bread, and the wine, these are visible elements that we outwardly partake of which symbolize inward spiritual realities in those who partake in faith. A person can participate in these sacraments outwardly without appropriating by faith the thing that is signified. This is why our confession says, worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in the sacrament do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in with or under the bread and wine, yet as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. And although ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements in the sacrament, yet they receive not the things signified thereby, but by their unworthy coming, they unto are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord to their own damnation. Wherefore, all ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with him, so they are unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot, without great sin against Christ, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted thereunto. So you see this duality throughout. You see this inward-outward thing going on in our calling, in the covenant, in the church membership, and then in the sacraments. All of God's ordinances, especially that of the word, sacraments of prayer, are outward means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation. And they are made effectual inwardly. That is, they empower, they produce. They are made effectual to the elect for their salvation by the work of the Spirit. 
Now, with that said, in closing, what is some practical stuff that we can take away from understanding this inward-outward nature? First, I'll say this. Because these means are outward, they involve our participation. As I said last week, we cannot neglect our use of these means. Because they are outward means, they must involve our participation. The word has to be preached and be taught. And you have to listen and receive it. The sacraments have to be administered and you have to partake in them. And so don't, don't sit around thinking that you can avoid these means and then expect to grow in grace, to grow in your relationship with God. It's not going to happen. And the second point I want to make is that because these means are outward, there is a clear distinction to be made between the outward means from the inward work, power, and blessing of the Holy Spirit. I like what one pastor said, a blogger, he said, quote, the outward means of grace can be effectual to our salvation only when the inward blessing of Christ by the Spirit accompanies it. Thus, we should not rely on the means but on the Spirit, with a prayerful heart that he would use the preaching and sacraments to save and edify God's people. That's why, if you, I don't know if some of you have ever read the Valley of Vision, it's a collection of Puritan prayers, you'll find this prayer. Guard my mind from making ordinances my stay or trust, from hewing out broken cisterns, from resting on outward helps. I remember when I first read that, I was like kind of taken back. Again, I was reading it 10 years ago. I was like, what? You got a problem with outward helps? No, not what you're saying. We do not and cannot neglect these ordinances. Christ commanded the church to teach the nations to observe all that he has commanded. We have to make use of them, but we also have to make a right use of them. We have to rightly understand their purpose and their design. There's a wrong way to use the word, to use the sacraments in prayer, and then there is the right way. For example, every Lord's Day when we take of the supper, we emphasize that we come by faith. We take and eat the bread and remember that Christ died for us and we feed on, on him in our hearts by faith. We emphasize by faith. Why are we emphasizing that? Because Christ is the thing signified. He is the substance, not the bread and not the wine. If you put the bread and wine in your mouth and you fail to meditate on his death, you fail to examine your life, you fail to sorrow for sin, to hunger and thirst after Christ, you fail to feed on him by faith, you fail to trust in his merits, to rejoice in his love and give thanks for his grace, then all you did was have a little snack. A snack, by the way, which reveals some idolatry in your heart. Because you thought by putting bread and wine in your mouth without meditating on what these things symbolize and by not examining your life, you thought somehow that doing that was going to have some effect in your life. Like it's magic. Beloved, bread and wine don't have the power to change you. The bread and wine is not God. The Puritan's language there of hewing out broken cisterns is from Jeremiah 2. There... Jeremiah says, has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? 
But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Notice, these people have labored and toiled to make cheap, broken imitations of the fountain of living waters. And these broken imitations can't even hold any water at all. Beloved, we make idols of these ordinances. We make cheap, broken imitations of them when we just go through the motions and do not use them in the way that God intended. When we do not use them as a means that point to him as the substance and we embrace him in faith and the repentance. That's what you had going on in Corinth. They outwardly partook of this thing called the Lord's Supper. But in failing to partake of it rightly, Paul says to him, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Like, but it is the Lord's Supper. What do you mean it's not the Lord? What, is he, what does he mean? What he's saying is you have a cheap imitation in which you are trampling upon the body and blood of Christ. And with that came judgment, weakness, illness, and even death. Well, we are to hourly partake of these things in the right manner, prayerfully and solely dependent upon the Holy Spirit so as to do that inward work within us. And so, pray in prayer as we continue this study. From here, we're going to look especially at the word, the sacraments and prayer. We're going to consider not only what they are, but how to make right use of them so that we're not just going through the motions so that we're not just outwardly identified with Christ, but inwardly as well.